Buongiorno. Isn't it funny how the uh, the mood of the country goes up and down with the state of the rugby? Um, it was also good to see the uh, women doing well in the rugby as well, and it's, it's great, isn't it, um, to have a sense that New Zealand's back on top. So anyway, there's the Italian greeting for you this morning, just to rub it in. And uh, listen, it's all—it's great to be with you. I feel very special. This is the third time I've been here. I'm so—I feel so at home. That I've got my own name tag now, which is uh, very special. So thank you, uh, Karen and I have just been coming for the last few weeks, and uh, we've been made to feel very welcome. Thanks very much. Um, just a bit of background as to our context. We're just down from Auckland. Um, Karen works at Laidlaw College, and Laidlaw has two centres. Uh, we made the shift down here. We have family roots down here as well. Uh, so we're starting a new life down in Christchurch. I'm looking for work. I've uh, tertiary or secondary level. Um, I've been out doing some relief teaching in the high schools, which has been a lot of fun getting to know the local kids here as well. Um, listen, we're just working with the, um, the text that's uh, on the lectionary this morning. Um, uh, and so I haven't necessarily come with anything that's, um, that Andrew's briefed me about. I said to him, oh, I'll just do the next whatever's in the lectionary. So that was in the lectionary. Um, and we are in Jerusalem with Jesus uh, on the first two days uh, that Matthew records him arriving in Jerusalem, and we're going to unpack that scripture together this morning. But a bit, bit more about us personally. I'm down from Auckland. Um, let's just honour kind of the way our Māori friends would introduce themselves. Uh, my father's side is from Yorkshire. My mother's side is from Shetland, which makes me part Viking. I like to play that one up a bit. Uh, and um, the walker that my mother's family arrived in was the HMS um, Peter Denny. She, they arrived in 1873 in Bluff Harbour, settled in Riverton, then moved to Dunedin. And then on my father's side, uh, they arrived in 1912 uh, on the USS, I was going to say USS Enterprise, no, the USS Niagara. Uh, from, uh, from Britain, originally Yorkshire, but uh, via America. Um, so, um, so Auckland and Dunedin are probably the two reference points uh, for my family history. Uh, but it's, it's good to be back here in Christchurch. As I said, uh, Karen particularly and some of my own family are here in Christchurch. It's great reconnecting with them and hopefully we'll have many years here um, in Canterbury. Um, coming back to the rugby, I was looking at the, the, the screen, you know, the, the TV, and the crowds are phenomenal. I mean, I, if, when you go to these big matches, you get all caught up in the crowds, don't you? And I don't know if you've experienced that. We have these big crowd moments. Um, I think of the, you know, the concert in the park here. Um, I think of the rugby games. I think of the music concerts we go to. Um, we get caught up, and when the gates open, we, get, we, we surge into the, the venue and bumping up and rubbing shoulders with everybody. And you can just imagine that when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he's, going, he's been in Jericho, he's going up the hill, he's probably with masses of crowd, numbers of crowds, uh, people. Um, he's, uh, he's, they're probably singing the songs of ascent, uh, possibly even the text that we've read this morning from, from the supplement to Daniel. Um, and, and singing is a joyous festival occasion. And as they arrive in Jerusalem, some scholars have estimated that the population of Jerusalem quintuples at Passover. 
So everyone's out camping up on the hillside, little campfires, they're sleeping out under the stars, they're just enjoying the festive occasion, uh, very sobering occasion, remembering the Passover when they were slaves in Egypt, but also joyous and expectation time, five times the population. Now can you imagine Christchurch swelling to five times the population, you know, when maybe the Canterbury, when the Crusaders or somebody are playing, right? I mean, that'd be just kind of get a hold of that. That's the background for the text this morning. And Matthew has Jesus arriving and outlines two days. Chapter 21 to 23, the first two days that Jesus is in Jerusalem amongst the hot, sweaty, travel-tired people. Um, and you can just imagine that. Into the, what do we do with all our camels and our donkeys and everything else? And the temple system is going full bore, you know, with all the animals being sacrificed. And it's just humming. This is the highlight of the year, all of Israel is pretty much in Jerusalem. That's the context for that reading this morning. And so the leaders come to Jesus and they say, well, who are you? Who on earth are you? And they say, well, by what authority are you doing these things? Well, what are these things that he's been doing? Well, he's come in, he's entered Jerusalem on a donkey, palms, the whole shebang, remember that? He comes and he clears the temple out. Now, this is an overcrowded marketplace. He's healing people, and all the kids, if you read the text beforehand, you know, if you go back and read 21 to 23, all the kids are singing and dancing praise to Jesus. Now, there's a little footnote in the text there, which I find really awesome. Right, so there's four things. He's come in, he's had this entry, he clears the temple, he heals people, and all the kids are like singing and dancing, and the leaders come like, hang on, mate, who are you, and by what authority are you doing this? In some sense, it's a naive question. That could be, it could be a genuine question, like, well, who's your rabbi? Who taught you? you know, where's your PhD? Um, you know, come on, why are you doing this? Do you have some sort of special license, busking license from the Roman authorities? Or it's possibly a more nasty question, isn't it? I think Jesus hears it as a provocative, nasty sort of question. It's a deeply theological question, by whose authority are you doing these things? This is day one. Jerusalem, right? It's quite an entrance to Jerusalem. Now, there's a certain irony here because as Jesus, as Jesus is confronted by these guys, Matthew is very, very clear that Jesus is actually judging Jerusalem. He's judging the leaders. He's judging the temple. He even judges a fig tree when he goes out to camp on the hillside at night. Yeah, and so there's a certain irony in this text that Matthew is quite happy to let us. It's quite a day. And what I want us to do is really look at Jesus' response. Okay? And Jesus' response comes in two ways. It comes with a question, and it comes with a parable. Okay? Question and a parable. If you like your maths, we're working with two days. We're working with two kind of conversation pieces, a question and an answer, and then what's coming up is two big ideas that I want you to ponder that come out of the text. Okay, so Jesus responds with a rhetorical question. Right now, in the day of, in these days of um, campaigning for elections, <laughs> how people respond to questions is absolutely fascinating. I was watching the leaders debate the other night, and um, Christopher Luxton dodged the compare's question about whether he was going to have a coalition with. Um, Winston Peters. Did you, anybody see that? And he said, well, I don't know the man, and um, I've never met him. And everyone's going, 
Yes, you have. And the compare says, how can you not know Winston Peters? Christopher Luxon doing this amazing, you know, amazing dodge around the question. Jesus is not doing that, okay? He actually comes with this very um, perceptive, he sees into their hearts, he sees where they're coming from, he knows they're kind of like building up resistance to him, and he asks this very perceptive question about, well, so what did you make of John the Baptist? And of course it corners them, doesn't it? If we say he was from God, <laughs> if we say he's from the people, you know, so they say, well, it's like Christopher Luxon, well, we're not quite sure, we don't really know, right? And... Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating response. It puts them on the spot, and it really, really raises their hackles. You can see the opposition arising. It grows through these first two days, and, through, and obviously um, Matthew is leading ultimately to the ultimate um, confrontation, which leads to the cross. Now, as we're starting to think about this, I just want to go on a bit of a side, side journey here and think, you know, if we claim to follow Jesus and put Jesus up as an example to follow... I'm just wondering if there's a note here about how we hold ourselves and how we respond to people. I've found, in terms of me holding myself as a Christian in the public sphere, mainly in schools, um, not trying to um, give uh, propositions to people as to what my Christian faith's all about, I try to teach myself question techniques. Right? So if somebody comes up with a really, really hard question or a confrontation, I don't go... Uh, Jesus died for your sins and, you know, you need to be saved or you're going to hell or something like that. I say, well, let's, where are you coming from? Let's work with some questions here. And just the way that Jesus responds here, I think, is a good reminder to how we actually respond to people. Let's come back with some questions. Where are you coming from? Like, what's going on here? What's going on at a deeper level? In school the other day, I was relieving at one of the local schools here. <laughs> As I love to do, I, I managed to move. The, they were all studying for their mock exams. <laughs> yeah, right. They're quite happily distracted. And, um, and I, got, I got them talking about all sorts of things, deep and meaning of life and all the rest, a few chuckles down the back, that's right. And then one girl at the back announced, Sir, I'm a pagan. What do you do with that? I was at another school. It must be, it must be Cantabrians. You come up with these amazing questions. Said to me, Sir, I do not believe in your God because your God kills people. What would you do with that? I had a question several years ago in a school in Auckland I was teaching at where two girls came to me after class and they were trying to catch me out. I could see a twinkle in their eyes. They said, this will get some of you, sir, we're Satanists. Now they're trying to shock me, right? What, what do you do with that? Right? Well, my kind of, the way that I've been trying to work with my Christian presence is to come back with questions. Instead of trying to get all defensive and try to defend God or defend Jesus, I come back with a question. And I think Jesus, the way that he handles people, watch for that in his responses and how the, the gospel writers actually portray Jesus' stance with people. It comes with penetrating questions. What's actually going on here? And all those three conversations I mentioned to you, even though those three girls were trying to, and they were all girls actually, um, they were trying to shock me um, by gently pushing back, where are you coming from, you know, with those questions. Uh, moved to a place of very, very good conversation. I think of Paul in Acts chapter 17. You know, he's trying to fill the gaps um, with his conversation with those at the Areopagus. They wanted to hear more in Acts 17, and I kind of like that place to end up on. So Jesus responds with a rhetorical question, and Jesus responds with a parable. Now, a parable 
you know, I'd encourage us to think, about how, does, how do we respond to people? Do we come back with like, propositions or do we come back with parables? Do we come back with stories? Um, my university days um, at Auckland University, um, I had just become a Christian. I had a fit of enthusiasm. I put myself up to the local Christian union at the university and they said, great, you can be in charge of evangelism at the mission week we're having. Oh, great, thanks very much. Um, so Auckland University, all the student, Christian students got together, we're going to evangelize the campus, right? Ideal students, idealistic students. And so um, being the, the, um, the, the person in charge of, of assigning places at the university where we're going to go witness for Jesus, nobody wanted to do the cafeteria. Surprise, surprise. And because I was leading it, I thought, right, I've got to go and evangelize the caf- cafeteria. Right, you just think about that for a minute. You're walking into a university cafeteria at lunchtime, one till two, there's like 5,000 students there. Well, that's what it seemed like, probably more like a couple of hundred. I walked in there, and I think, I'm, I'm, supposed to, I'm supposed to witness for Jesus. How do you do this? And I walked up to a table, and then I walked up to another table, and another table, and I walked right through there and out the door at the other side. And I was just overwhelmed by that. I just didn't know what to do. How on earth would I witness for Jesus? And I've, it's actually a story that stayed with me for the rest of my life. And I thought, what would have happened if I'd actually approached that quite differently? If I'd taken what Jesus did, actually just started telling stories about normal things in life. Matthew has three parables. This is the first of three about two sons. That's like a normal thing, right? About tenant farmers, about marriage. This is like normal life stuff. And Jesus has this amazing ability to turn normal stuff into amazing, deeply profound, spiritual, spiritually insightful stories. And I thought, if I actually approached my own witness and stance as a Christian more of a storyteller than trying to be propositional, I'd probably have a lot better engagement with people uh, around the important things of the gospel. So that's a little bit of a, a, a digression, a little bit of who I am and what I think is important in terms of how I hold myself as a Christian um, question asking and storytelling and two skills that I'm working on and I see Jesus there as the great ex- um, person to, to exemplify. So listen, I'll come back to the text now and think about the, the, the core guts of it and I want to put us a lens, give us a lens. So um, the second slide here where you've got the last text there, um, <clears throat> for John came to you in the way of righteousness, the way of righteousness, I want you to hold that phrase the way of righteousness, and you, now John, um, Jesus is talking to the, um, the leaders, the Israelite leaders here, you did not believe him, that's John, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even after you saw it, <laughs> you did not change your minds and believe him. So, changing your minds, believing, repent is the word there in some of the other text, change your minds, repent, repent and believe. So let's go with the key idea, way of righteousness and then repent and believe. Those are two kind of things I want you to hold on to now as we uh, continue to reflect on this. You must remember that when Jesus is talking to the leaders, in some sense they were already believers. They were already part of the people of God. They were Jews, right? They are the people of the covenant, Right, so this is an internal conversation that Jesus is having with leaders who should have known better, who should have understood their calling. It wasn't like complete outsiders like Romans or, or um, Persians or, or, or Egyptians who were visiting outside the people. These were people inside who should have already known. And yet, 
he uses these phrases, the kingdom of God, um, the way of righteousness, and repent and believe. Now, if you're a believer and you're told to repent and believe, it's kind of like, how does that work? I thought I'd already done that, right? No, he's talking internally to people and calling them to repent and believe. But he is also calling us to consider tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, I always think about when I see the tax collectors in the gospel, I think, bummer if you work in the IRD, right? Because I'm thinking, why does Jesus have it in for you tax collectors? And we don't talk like that, do we? Would anybody here work with the IRD? No, it's not against you, okay? The whole big deal with the tax collectors is that they were, big word coming up, duplicitous. They were double-minded. They were, they were ripping people off, right? They were collecting taxes for the Romans, right? They were usually Jews collecting taxes for the Romans, and that's why they were loathed. You with me? So if you're an IRD worker and you happen to be processing my tax returns, there's nothing against you and Jesus thinks you're all right, okay? So don't worry about that. Anyway, so once we've sorted those categories out, we've got these two lenses, the way of righteousness and repent and believe. Jesus was talking to those who are already in. They had seen John the Baptist. Some of them would have gone down to the Jordan. Some of them would have all gone up and seen Jesus' ministry up in Galilee. They would have seen the prophetic nature of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. They would have understood John the Baptist in terms of Isaiah being the, the, um, the forerunner of Jesus' coming. Um, and they would have seen the significance of the healing that would have been going on in the temple. And they would have already got this idea that something is happening. We don't like it because we're supposed to be doing that. And here's this upstart from Nazareth right, coming here and doing Stuff that we recognize. What's going on here? That's our call, and it's starting to be offensive to them. And yet, the call is repent and believe. Repent and believe. It's interesting, isn't it, how we relate to Jesus these days. I mean, as, as I kind of get to know and talk with people, people relate to Jesus in a whole host of different ways. Jesus is a problem solver. Um, Jesus is my warm, snuggly blanket. I can shift the blame for life onto Jesus. Jesus is my boyfriend. We think about how we talk about Jesus. It's like, this is quite confronting. How we're relating to Jesus. Repent and believe, he says. You don't get to know me by thinking of me as a, as a comfort blanket. You don't get to know me by thinking of me as your problem solver. No, repent and believe. This is what I want from you people. You're kind of with me on that, which is quite confronting. And no wonder the pressure keeps building. No wonder the opposition keeps building. Um, and eventually it builds so much that we get over to the end of this whole section where we have the incident uh, with the, the, um, the coin uh, with the image of Caesar, which we'll come to in just a minute. So the two big ideas, okay, two first days in Jerusalem, two components to the conversation, a question and an answer, and our two big ideas that I want you to work with, okay? So the first one is this whole idea of hypocrisy and duplicity. Duplicity. I love that word, duplicity. I think of Voldemort in the first um, Harry Potter film. I mean, he had two faces, the one that presented to the world, and then another one, you turn at the end, you discover he's got two faces. That's what duplicity is about being two-faced, right? And the call here of Jesus to these guys is basically you're two-faced. You're hypocrites. You have two faces. You present one to the world, the religious world, and yet 
deep down, this is not what you're believing in. This is not how you're holding yourself. They were duplicitous. They were, hold, they were duplicitous about John the Baptist's authority. They were duplicitous, two-faced about their own calling to lead. They were two-faced about the righteousness that John the Baptist was promoting, this way of righteousness. They were two-faced about their own humility, refusing to repent and believe. Now, you think about who, G, who, who Jesus compares these two to. Um, he compares them to the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Now, in some sense, they're two-faced as well. The tax collectors, I'm Jewish, but I'm collecting for the Romans. The prostitutes, I live a normal working day with my family, and yet at night I sell my body. Also think about the men who exploit the prostitutes. I have a normal working day, I'm an elder in the temple or whatever, and yet at night I visit prostitutes. There's kind of a duplicity that's right through the story, a two-facedness all the way through. And yet Jesus commends the tax collectors and the prostitutes right, for following, paying attention to John the Baptist and following the way of righteousness. There's a difference in this type of duplicity. I think it's all about the humility. Now, Matthew himself, don't forget, is a tax collector. He can smell double-facedness, duplicity anywhere. He himself was a tax collector. He himself has collected taxes for the Romans. He can smell a rat when it comes to bad motives, duplicity, and double-facedness. And Jesus calls a hypocrisy out, doesn't he? Just calls it out. Doesn't mince his words. Repent and believe. Come on, guys. Repent and believe. Now, I'm from Auckland, right? And you guys support the Crusaders, but I'm actually a blues supporter. I've just confessed to you some duplicity. Now, moving beyond that triteness, that kind of silliness, there is a deep sense in each of us that we do hold... Duplicities, right? We are two-faced about many things, don't we? We think about these men, often, Christian men, leaders, who are in the news because they get caught out exploiting somebody, sexual misdemeanors, right? And it breaks our heart every time how Christian leaders will fall. They present this face of togetherness, they're leading us, Christian, whatever, right? And they fall, we discover that there's a really, really dark side Each of us, I think, probably have those dark shadows, don't we? We hold ourselves well in front of each other, even today, even this morning. And yet deep inside us, we do have these dark corners, much like these Israelite leaders would have had. And Jesus called them out. And maybe Jesus is calling us out this morning as well. So that's the first big idea. The second big idea is around this parable. Right? Remember, the parable is about two sons. The first son... The father calls the boys into going work in the vineyard. The first boy says, nah. And then he changes his mind and he goes and works. The first says, yeah, I'll come. And then he changes his mind and doesn't go. And Jesus rightly says, well, who's the better boy? And they all say, well, the first one, right? The first one said, nah, and then I'll go. Bingo. Pretty straightforward parable. The idea here, of course, that vineyard is a common picture throughout Scripture for Israel. Let's go with the Lord's work, the context where God is working, Israel, the vineyard, today the church. Okay? And the idea here is working, all right? So working where God's working. So the first boy, nah, and then changes the mind. I will go and work to what God has called me, to what the Father has called me, to work in the vineyard. And the second boy, no, I'm not going to do it. So there's a call here to, to, to action, and they recognize it, don't they? 
from refusal, no, I'm not going to work, repenting, changing his mind, and then action out into the vineyard. And again, you know, that personal challenge, (laughs) yeah, is, is there some invitation of working in God's vineyard, working in the church, working in Christian ministry, whatever it is, maybe somebody's been approaching you, maybe you've been niggled out by the Spirit, you know, you should be doing this, you're going, nah, nah, I'm going to just push that one away. Like the second son might say, yeah, yeah, I'll volunteer, but then I'll never sign up. Yeah, I'll be a Sunday school teacher, but I'll never sign up. Or I'll go, no, I'm not going to join up. But then you do, brilliant. There's a, I think there's an invitation there for us to consider that question. It, like, the, like the first son there. Inaction to action in the parable. There's a challenge there for us. It's a challenge there for me. on the table here. Can, anybody, can you all see it? All right. You see it? Can anybody just call out what you see? Can you just call out a bowl? Want to just narrow that down? Sorry? Okay. Type of bowl? Tiny bowl? That's what I lifted up. Okay. It's a, it's a nice bowl. It's just a normal bowl out of the kitchen. What would you put in this bowl? What would it contain? Corn chips. Okay, let's go with fruit. And you'll notice, of course, that on the PowerPoint there's a bowl. Now, if I'd been really, really clever, it would have been the same bowl. Let's just think about this bowl. And let's think of it as a fruit bowl. Okay, let's go with your one. I want to kind of start to land this whole um, sermon thinking about what should be actually in that bowl. It's an empty bowl. We could use that as a metaphor for the lives of these Christian, le- these um, Jewish leaders who come and, and question Jesus. They're empty of the very fruit that should be there out of the ministry that they have amongst God's people. Maybe they don't even have a fruit bowl in the first place. And I've been thinking about this metaphor and I've been thinking, about what, what should it actually symbolize? We all have heard of the fruit of the Spirit, haven't we? And we're going to end up with the fruit of the Spirit in just a minute. But I do want, I promise you, I'll take you across to that passage which finishes off these two days in Jerusalem where Jesus is confronted ultimately with this really, really big challenge from the leaders. And they say, should we pay taxes to Caesar? (laughs) You know the story, right? Because it always gets trotted out when it's, you know, giving Sunday or something. And you're supposed to, you know, think about your wealth and who you're giving to, right? Now, I personally don't think it's much about money at all. It's a culmination of this conflict that these Jewish leaders have of Jesus. And they really want to hammer him on this one. They really want to put him on the spot. Don't forget all of Israel's in town, right? They're trying to put him on that. And it's a politically loaded question, right? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Don't forget there's Roman guards all around the place. There's a Roman guard attached to the temple. Roman soldier over there on his horse, whatever. It's a socially charged question. It's a very Jewish question. Well, we're not going to, obviously, not going to pay taxes to Caesar, right? We have temple tax, right? There's all the money changes. It's also a deeply theological question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? No, we should be devoted to God. It's, it's a hugely charged question. And Jesus again sees through their duplicitousness and he says to them, well, Give us a coin. Let's see on a coin. So they pull out a coin. 
I show him a coin. And he says, well, whose image is on the coin? And they look at it, and they rightly say, it's Caesar's image. Now, you all know the story, right? It's just a little bit on a bit. And he, they say, well, it's Caesar's image. Right? And he says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar, and give to God that which is God. Now, the implication there is, where is God's image? The answer to that is you, right? Caesar's image on the coin, God's image on you. Now, if you think of that as a filter for all that's going on here, where is God's image? It's on you people, but you people are letting the side down. This is what Jesus is saying. Okay, the leaders are not fulfilling their roles properly, and then how does that image take, take hold in people's lives? It takes hold following the way of righteousness through repentance and belief. So, what's the result then of that image? Well, here we go. The fruit of the Spirit. Can you all name them from Galatians chapter 5? I have to have a list of kind of myself. Love, joy, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. And the people who are confronting Jesus there, he's saying, guys, this is what your lives should be looking like. Right? When your image of God is restored in you through repentance and faith, this is what your image should be looking like. So there we are. I hope that's been a blessing to you, but I am going to finish with a prayer. Okay? It's going to be a bit of a challenging prayer. And pray along with me if, in fact, you can do so. Okay? So let's pray together. Lord God, I confess my sins of duplicity. I confess my sins of laziness and neglect. I believe again, I reorientate, I turn to you again and ask for renewed and right relationship that your image may be restored in me again by the work of your spirit that your fruit will again be seen in my life. Amen.